It's Monday, October the 11th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, Sydney lets loose and the Taliban sit with the Americans. First, the world in brief. Sydney's lockdown ended after 106 days, at least for the 70% of the population who are vaccinated against COVID-19. The unvaccinated must stay at home through November. The government of New South Wales warned that the number of cases will rise. Further loosening is planned once the vaccination rate reaches 80%, including the resumption of foreign travel, barred since March 2020. Representatives of America met the Taliban for the first time since the fall of Kabul. An American official said their discussions in Qatar were, quote, candid and professional, covering security, evacuations and humanitarian assistance. The Taliban were upbeat too, but ruled out any cooperation in their fight against Islamic State Khorasan province, which bombed a Shia mosque in Kunduz last week. Janet Yellen, America's Treasury Secretary, says she is confident that Congress will approve a 15% corporate tax for big companies. The minimum global rate, agreed by 136 countries on Friday, aims to claw back money lost to tax havens. Ms Yellen said the proposal would likely be added to Joe Biden's reconciliation budget bill. Milos Zeman, the Czech president, entered intensive care, throwing doubt on coalition talks in the wake of the country's parliamentary election. Andrei Babish, the prime minister, saw his ANO party finish behind Together, a centre-right grouping, which could secure a majority with Pirates and Mares, a pro-transparency alliance. The president, who spent eight days in hospital last month, was due to lead talks. Polls closed in Iraq's parliamentary election, the first in the country since mass protests against corruption and unemployment in 2019. The vote, originally due next year, was brought forward six months in response. It used a new electoral system said to benefit independent candidates. But the main Shia parties are still expected to win most seats. Nick Clegg, an executive at Facebook, said that the company's algorithms should be held to account, quote, if necessary, by regulation. Speaking to CNN, he also said Facebook would be open to changing laws that limit social media platforms' liability for users' posts. Last week, a former Facebook employee told Congress that the company downplays the harmful impacts of its products. Sebastian Kurz said he will step down as Austria's Chancellor. On October 6th, a prosecutor put Mr Kurz under investigation for bribery in relation to payments to a newspaper for favourable polling and coverage. Mr Kurz dismissed the accusations as politically motivated. He has proposed that Alexander Schallenberg, the foreign minister, replace him. And fact of the day. £305 million. The price, a Saudi-backed consortium paid for Newcastle United, an English football club, which becomes the latest team linked to an authoritarian regime. 
And now, here's today's agenda. Gathering clouds, the IMF and the World Bank meet. Monday marks the start of the International Monetary Funds and the World Bank's annual meetings in Washington, D.C. Policymakers from around the world will spend the week talking shop during a fraught moment for the global economy. Energy shortages and supply chain problems threaten economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, and poor countries are struggling to vaccinate their populations. But substantive talks may be overshadowed by drama within the organisations. Last month, it was reported that Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the IMF, may have massaged several countries' scores in the Doing Business annual report produced by the World Bank, where Ms Georgieva used to work, to placate sniffy governments like China's. The report contains a league table that assesses the ease of doing business in different countries around the world. She now faces pressure to resign, but the debacle prompts bigger questions about the future of these institutions and their ability to play a useful and apolitical role in an increasingly volatile geopolitical environment. After the vote, the horse trading. Iraq's election. Results in Iraq's parliamentary election, held on Sunday, are expected within hours. But it could be months before Iraqis know who will govern the country. Its profusion of factions, most of them armed, will now begin jostling over who gets which ministry and the budget that comes with it. They will also tussle over who would make the most malleable prime minister. Their various foreign patrons, America, Israel, Iran and the Arab states of the Gulf will exert pressure to secure a favourable government. Public scepticism is widespread. Few Iraqis believe their vote will loosen the grip of Kurdish and Shia armed groups. More international monitors, better safeguards against fraud and smaller constituencies fail to induce a high turnout or silence calls for a boycott. Democracy limps on in Iraq, but any hope that the country might become a beacon for accountable government in the region has long since evaporated. Bottom of the heap, India's coal crunch. The lights are starting to flicker in India. Most of the country's electricity comes from 135 coal-burning power stations and the majority of them are running with less than three days' supply of fuel. Demand for coal has surged as India's economy rouses itself from one of the worst COVID-induced contractions anywhere. In August, power consumption was more than 16% higher than it had been in 2019. Unseasonal rainfall has slowed excavation and transport of coal from India's mining belt. Meanwhile, global prices are nearing record highs, thanks to a similar surge in demand in China. Rajasthan's state government has imposed rolling one-hour blackouts in 12 districts to cope with shortages. Other state governments are begging the Prime Minister Narendra Modi to help. He might like to emphasise his country's growing commitment to renewable energy in the run-up to COP26, the UN climate summit, due to start within the month. But Mr Modi also needs to keep India's recovery humming. Mm-hmm.
Pandora Boxed, the Czech election. Andrej Babish is one of the Czech Republic's richest men and since 2017, its Prime Minister. An audit by the European Commission this year called that a conflict of interest. Parliamentary elections that ended on Saturday may have solved the problem. Mr Babish's ANO party was beaten by Together, a centrist alliance, which won 27.8% of the vote. The Prime Minister faced investigations into alleged misuse of EU funds by Agrofert, the company he founded. And a week before the election, the Pandora Papers, documents leaked from financial firms, showed he had used shell companies in the British Virgin Islands to buy a 22 million US dollars French villa. He denies any wrongdoing. Coalition talks may be delayed. Milos Zeman, the Czech Republic's 77-year-old president, was due to lead them but was admitted to intensive care on Sunday. Yet victory for Together vindicates a strategy on show in other countries, including Hungary. Parties across the political spectrum teaming up to defeat a populist. More than meets the eye. Surrealism beyond borders. Surrealism first came to the fore in France in the 1920s, when the writer André Breton published his Surrealist Manifesto. In the decades since, the movement has spread around the world. But its reputation remains tied to its French origins. Its broader scope is often ignored. That is why curators at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art and London's Tate Modern have produced Surrealism Beyond Borders on display at the Met from Monday until the end of January, then at the Tate from February until August. The exhibition spans nearly eight decades and 45 countries. It displays works by the likes of Salvador Dali and René Magritte, alongside those of lesser-known artists from Buenos Aires to Tokyo. Surrealism often subverts reality in the service of social, political or personal liberation. Breton, somewhat opaquely, called it, quote, pure psychic automatism, and artists around the world have embraced that obscure definition of freedom in very different ways. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Henry Heinz, who was born on this day in 1844. To do a common thing uncommonly well brings success. That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening.